Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your time uh, that you've blessed us with, Lord, an opportunity now to just uh, get into your word. And so we pray that you speak to us, be with us as we look to you, and open up our eyes and our ears to what you have to say. May we see what you desire us to see. And as we interact, Lord, as we participate, I pray that you would speak through us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Who knows what Deuteronomy means? Numbers and laws. Second law. Yeah, something like that. Second time, I'm going to tell you the same thing. <laughs> something like that. So Moses is a days from dying. Moses is just on the verge of dying. It's, he's not going to die because he's sick. He's not going to die because he gets hit by a train or a boulder falls out of the sky. God's just done with him, and God's going to take him home. Simple as that. He's as healthy as healthy could be. He could continue to lead the nation of Israel another 40 years, probably, but um, not going to happen. God's done. And so he is preparing the nation of Israel as they go into the promised land. Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. And remember, Moses being a type of the law, Joshua being a type of Jesus, the law cannot take you into the promised land. The law will not get you to heaven. Moses can't take you into heaven, but Jesus sure can. Amen? Amen. So that's a, a type there that we recognize as well. And so you hear people ask questions. How come Moses couldn't take him in? And I mean, he just did one little tiny thing. Well, he represents the law. The law is not going to take you into a relationship with God, but Jesus is. So let's continue where we left off. Verses one through eight. This is Deuteronomy chapter 16. Get ready. I am going to, we're going to do kind of just as we go through the chapter, I'll, I'll just comment on what all these feasts are and what's going on. But there's a time where I'm going to solicit some questions. And sometimes when I ask questions, I know the answer. And sometimes I don't. So I'd like to see what you guys think. We didn't know that. We're always scared of answering. Well, if it's, yeah, if it's, if I, if I think I know the answer, then I'll, and you're wrong, I'll say, I'll let you know. Yeah, not so much. But if I don't know the answer, then I'll just kind of food for thought. I'll be like, huh, never thought about that. And then if it's something that just provokes my little brain, and I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool stuff. I don't know. We'll just learn from one another. Amen. Um, verse one, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents 
Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So Passover took place in the spring and commemorated the way the children of Israel were released from Egypt. What is Passover? When the angel of death passed over the houses. Okay. Why did the angel of death need to pass over the houses? So the, the kids were going to die. Okay, so that was going to be the accomplishment of that angel of death passing over them. But what brought it on? Why did we need this angel of... Pharaoh would not let the people... Okay, so it would be the tenth of the ten plagues in Egypt. It would be the final one, the death of the firstborn of all their livestock and every child in a home. And so the only way that they would be able to not have this angel of death affect their house is if the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and the lentil of their homes, then the angel of death would see that, pass over their home, and they wouldn't experience that death. And so they needed to be covered by the blood. Okay? Why the haste and the leaven? Who remembers where that comes into play? Haste. They had to be in a hurry and leaven. Their bread couldn't have leaven as they commemorated the... Take out the sin. But they were also doing it in haste, so they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, so no leaven was put in the bread because you have to wait for the leaven. Leaven is a type of sin. And so for us, it speaks of um, kind of a preparation for the Passover lamb. Uh, remember... Uh, before Jesus would start his ministry, John the Baptist in preparation would say for the ministry of the Messiah, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get rid of your sin. Repent. Get ready to receive the message of the gospel and the Messiah himself is on the horizon. Jesus would come and he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. <laughs> so neat little things going on. Next one, verses nine through 12. You shall count, and then we're going to time all together, but you shall count Seven weeks for yourself, begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, and you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So if you take the day of Passover, and the very next day, count seven weeks, the day that the sickle goes into the ground, you start harvest, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, took place 50 days, seven times seven is 49 plus one, 50 days after Passover, in anticipation of God's provision as his people wave the first harvest of summer season before him. Okay? And so Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, what does that commemorate for the Christian? The Lord? The Feast of Weeks. What's it represent? Yeah, because the tabernacle comes next. Right. In terms of why they did it? Well, they, they're doing it because it's one of the three... Yeah festivals that God is going to call them to come back to Jerusalem, to Israel eventually. So we, we know that there's three feasts, and we're, these are the three. You know, it's Pentecost, Passover, Pentecost, and then we'll see the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And so they were going to be required to come. But I'm trying to... Okay, so the church is born. So as they're planning and a harvest is coming, Jesus is planting the seed and the church is being born. Okay. Because was the day of Pentecost when the... Church was born with the 3,000 came. Okay. Tell you, I don't know all this stuff. You guys can teach me. Third one, verses 13 through 15. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, um, and the Levite and uh, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. The Feast of Tabernacle took place in the fall as the Jews dwelt in lean-tos in celebration of the way God brought the children of Israel through the wilderness. And so that's a celebration to let them know that, hey, even though we were in these temporary tents for a season, God brought us through nonetheless, okay? Um, So you have Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the, uh, where is it, fall? First harvest, so it's not fall. Uh, 50 days after Passover, and then the Feast of Tabernacles took place in the fall. And so you're seeing seasons taking place, and God is having these festivals, and I see it as these reminders of what God is doing. And God wants them to remember. God wants their lives to be integrated with God infused throughout. It's not just this religious thing where you just take this time okay sunday or once a year or twice a year easter and christmas no 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 throughout your life god is woven into the fabric of what you're doing to keep him on your mind to keep current with what he's done his faithfulness i think for us a good way to do that is a a, a journal i know a lot of christians don't use journals but it's just neat to be able to have you have a prayer request write it down in your journal so, and then when God answers it, write the answer down in the date. And that's something that you can go back to in those moments where, man, I'm just struggling right now. I haven't heard from the Lord. Or, man, you know, is, is, is God faithful? You go to that journey and you're like, oh my gosh, God has been faithful in my life. Look at what he's done. So I encourage you guys to do that. There was a season in Joel's life where I was talking to him and I told him, Joel, I want you to keep a journal. And I want you to write down these struggles that you're going through because God's going to answer every single one of them. And I want you to be able to have that to, to go back on because there was a time where Joel wanted to quit. He wanted to come home. And he was gonna, he's not going to be a missionary because he didn't see the fruit in the time that he wanted to see it. And I said, help me, Joel. Walk me through this. Why are you there? How'd you get there? Well, God told me this, and then the scripture said this, and then this. I said, write that down. (laughs) Write all that down. Put it in your journal. And God's hand, you see what's going on in the Ukraine right now, and you just see the blessing of what's taking place. And, uh, you know, sometimes we want to quit. Sometimes it gets hard. Sometimes we don't see things in the time that we want to see them. God is at work. God's not left his throne. And so it's very important for us to recognize that. 
Look at verses 16 and 17. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. I wrote, when we meet, come ready to give, so many come empty-handed. Why? Notice in that little section right there, he says, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. How do we, as the church, sometimes come empty-handed? What are ways that you've seen Christians come to the Lord or to serve the Lord empty-handed? Going to church, helping out at church. Okay. So in ministry, ministry opportunities, you see uh, the 2080 rule where 20% of the church is serving, doing 80% of the work. The other 80% may be contributing 20% of the time. I don't know if that's the, the ratio, but we see that a lot, don't we? We see a lot of bench warmers or pew sitters. Okay, that's one way. What else? How do we come empty-handed? No, not tithing. Okay, so we could hold back our tithes, for sure. How else? I'm praying for people. Okay, so everybody has a ministry. There's this lady in the hospital. She was laying in a hospital bed, paralyzed. Church member? She was so sad she was not going to be able to do the ministries that she was involved in. So she asked the pastor to bring um, a list of the people who were on the prayer list and just to put them paralyzed from the neck down and to put them on the wall where she can see the names and their prayer requests next to it so that she can pray. She couldn't do what she used to do, but she can see that list and lift those members up to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? So, I mean, we can all do something. We can all contribute. We don't have to come empty-handed. And trust me, any leader in the church, if there's nothing you can do, but there's only one thing you can do, and that one thing was pray, woo! there's not a leader that'll turn that down. That's what we need. We need more than anything. We need prayer. So we don't want to come to the Lord empty-handed. There's a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that we can do where we're not, we're, we live in a consumer culture, so we're used to just taking, 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 and never giving. You look at this home Bible study, and you look at how many hands contribute to the feasts that we get to have each week. And to me, that's a little tiny opportunity for us to give and participate and not come empty-handed. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean every week, you know, you got to spend a million dollars or whatever, but hey, if you're able to bring a... Wow, Jake, you're going to mention prime rib again. That's a prime rib boy right there. That's a, that's a, that's third time, third time in three weeks. Jake, Jake has mentioned prime rib. That's crazy. Go to verse 18. Interesting verse as we continue. It's a short chapter. Uh, verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. I found an interesting application for this verse. Jump over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to come back to Deuteronomy and close it out, that chapter 16. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so he's saying there in Deuteronomy 16 verse 18, 
hey, I want you guys to have people that are set up in the cities where if somebody has a problem or an issue with, with a brother or a sister, I want you to go to those leaders, those elders, those individuals that can reconcile those things for you, that can remedy those things for you, that can give you sound wisdom with your problems. And so the application that I, as I was reading this, I just remembered this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Everybody there? Start at verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Isn't that interesting? I have a dispute with a brother in Christ, with a sister in Christ. He says, dare any one of you go to the law before you go to one another? Settle your matters first. And then if it can't be reconciled, then maybe we got to go to the courts. Maybe we got to go to the law. But so many of us are non-confrontational. We'd rather throw somebody under the bus and sue them before we can even go to somebody and just say, hey. Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Seven and eight. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. But why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So yes, there's this concept. And here's the problem. It's not just lawsuits. But how about when we take our brothers or sisters to the court of public opinion and we throw them under the bus? That's very sad. Yeah, so we need to be very careful if, we have, if we're offended, if we have somebody do something that we feel was improper or unjust or not right or bugged us and we just, oh, be careful how you handle that. Matthew 18 tells us if you're offended, you go to that brother by yourself. If he doesn't receive you, you take a witness, two or three. If he doesn't receive you, then you tell it to the church, which means you tell the leadership then the leadership goes, speaks to that individual. Then if he won't receive the leaders, then you treat him like an unbeliever. So you'll probably excommunicate him or do something like that. Wouldn't you first have to discern why it's affected you? Has it affected your ego, yeah. which is Before the physical or spiritually? Yeah. So you should do a personal check in your own heart. Why am I so bothered by this kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. I think the mature brother or sister would do that. Yeah. Pride. Because Pride, it's so yeah. easy to, you know, even if your mind is set on the law to let your ego be bothered by certain things. I mean, I suffer that a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have to check myself and say, why does that bother me? Is it bothering me spiritually? Is it, is it not something that doesn't come from here? Or is it my ego? Okay. So Lorraine is uh, encouraging that before we even go to Matthew 18 or have to call on somebody who's wise in the church to be able to dispute it, 
We should do a self-evaluation first. Why is this bothering so much? Why is this in me? Am I super sensitive? I had a brother who I was sharing with, and he was offended by a church leader, and he quit the church, and he was in ministry, and he just left and walked away. And so I'm listening to his story, and I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening, and um, I told him, bro, are you aware that you're hypersensitive? And he had never heard that. He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, well, let's look at the history. And I began to review the history with him, and he's like, wow, wow, I never really took that into consideration. And so there should be reasonable <laughs> responses within the realm that a reasonable, prudent person, we see it in Thessalonians, a reasonable, prudent person would be able to respond maybe on a high end here, on a low end here, but when we go to this extreme or down to this extreme, then we, be, we, we forsake being reasonable. We become unreasonable. And there's something that's driving that which was said or done to me. It's more than just the situation. It's me and maybe things I haven't dealt with, some stuff that I need to get in touch with, and I think that's what Lorraine is, is communicating to. So be careful with your reactions to any given situation and make sure that they fit that which is prudent, reasonable, okay? And a reasonable response should be, you know, where, wherever you're at. It shouldn't be this hyper stuff. Okay. Let's, let's move on. Let's thank you for sharing. Verse 19 through 21. Verse 19. You shall not pervert. And I think this goes on the heels of what he just said, that appoint these individuals, have them set up um, so that they can judge the people. Verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twist the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant for yourselves any tree. Yeah, I guess this can go with it. As a wooden image near the altar, which you build yourself, uh, build for yourself to the Lord your God. And so I think we have to check our motives when we are confronting people or talking to people. Um, and be careful that money's not the motive. And I, I see this. I see, I see people treat certain people very differently than they treat other people. And to be honest with you, that shouldn't be the case for the Christian. We should come at everybody respectfully. We should come at everybody um, without an ulterior motive. Without, well, what can this person do for me? If you think about the heart of God, he says, if you want to know pure and undefiled religion, how about you minister to people who can do nothing for you? Orphans and widows. Individuals who, in that culture, first century A.D., they had nothing to offer you. And it was going to be taxing if you were going to minister to them, to love them. And that's the heart of God. The heart of God is to reach us, not because of what he gets from us, but to bless us. And so I think that is a good motive check. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, the Bible says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And so if you know that you have a problem with money, if you know that you have a problem with um, pride in how you look because you you're friends with somebody who has a name or has something, then watch those motives. 
careful of those types of things. Well, I'm going to buddy up with this guy because he, he knows this guy and, and he's going to open doors. Isn't God opening and closing doors for you? Don't you know the highest person in the highest place? And so again, that's just a check on our motives and why we do what we do. If we're representing Christ, we shouldn't have ulterior motives. <coughs> and that's interesting in our day and age in religion because I see unfortunate things taking place in the name of Jesus, in the name of ministry, where people are setting themselves up in, in ways that it's just, it's, it's gross to me. It's sickening. But it happens so much in so many churches where they grease the hand of the pastor because they want to be involved in ministry. You're paying for ministry? Yeah, it's the only way to get used around here. That's sad. Just all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Last verse, 22, you shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. 21 and 22, sh I should have read them together. You shall not plant, verse 21 says, any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. Um, be careful with idolatry. Our idolatry is very different than the idolatry that we read about in the Old Testament. As they're coming into the land of Canaan, they're gonna have these high places, these trees, these sacred places where they would worship these false gods. They would have temple prostitutes where they would use sex to worship their false gods. They would have all these things. And we look at that and we think, oh my gosh, those archaic people are so messed up. Our idols are no better, in fact, probably worse than <laughs> a lot of this because we do it in subtlety. We worship things we shouldn't worship. And so we need to be very careful. There's a, vim, a vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 that speaks of who Jesus is as a picture. And he's coming back as a judge. And he's coming back in wrath. And so we want to be very careful not to exchange this almighty God for anything less than who he really is. And so let's be careful with that. Idolatry is an interesting sin, and we want to steer clear from it. Any questions? Comments? Go ahead. Um, well, it's more or less along the comment I really did like the, the scripture on, um, you know, Christians and the law. And um, I just felt like from that, that um, scripture, how the Lord is constantly calling us to be peacemakers, and those are opportunities for us to have hearts of peacemaking when we feel that mm -hmm. we've been wrong. Like he says, you know, why not be wrong? Why not just, you know, why do you have to be right here? And sometimes it's hard to, like, you know, absorb things as Christ would absorb them. Um, but it is definitely, like, it's always been good for me and exposes a lot of things I didn't know were there in my heart. So I like that, what I got. <coughs> I, um, I was wronged at a church and I was removed from a ministry and I remember I wanted to say goodbye to the group that I was uh, going to leave and I wasn't allowed. And so I had a meeting um, at my house where I invited them to come out because they wouldn't have let me go and do it in the church setting. And um, this was the scripture the Lord put on my heart. And he said, hey, 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 be careful what you say. And how you say it. Don't crucify in the court of public opinion the leaders that I've placed over you. 
respect them, honor them. Maybe you wouldn't have done it like that, but be careful. And so I, I, it, it, I do find it interesting, again, how quickly we um, aren't careful to indict people and, you know. What I've learned in ministry is um, uh, I wouldn't do things a lot of ways or the way that I see a lot of leaders do it. But who cares? Who am I? I don't hone the market on right or wrong. God does. And if God has raised somebody up, then we are to respect that position. If not the person, at least the position. And so my meeting at my home was one of, I, I just want to let you guys know I love you. And I'll be praying for you guys. And, um, you know, pray for me in this new journey that God has me on. But I didn't talk one bit about leaders or who said this or how they did it or anything it had that my meeting had nothing to do with that and i think the maybe some of the leaders were fearing that i would pollute the sheep or you know say something bad about the leadership that wasn't my intent or my heart at all i just wanted to say bye to the sheep that i had for 10 years that's that's all i wanted to do right i mean you pour into these lives and you marry people and you watch children born and I just want to say bye. That's all. That was my heart. So again, but the Lord put 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Be careful in the court of public opinion because we can, we can brutally just kill people and their reputations. And what we're saying from our perspective is true. It's not that there's not truth in it, but the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And so we need to be careful when we accuse the brethren. And that doesn't mean that we can't warn or that if there's a teacher that's going off, we can't name names. The scripture names names and things like that. But <coughs> I just think we need to be careful. Get a little thicker skin. So what? Somebody wronged you. Get over it, you know. Build a bridge and get over it. Just like what we read today in uh, Genesis 38, 15 about what happened with Judah. You know, like you were talking about said there in, in chapter in verse 15 of 38 Genesis said when Judah saw her he thought she was a prostitute remember that lady Sheila Sheila or Sheila and then he and because of the, he was like supposed to be her her daughter-in-law or, or her father-in-law or something he didn't know it or something we were reading that today and that and you, you mentioned something about that before and I just remember how we read that today yeah it's Tamar I got it. Go ahead, Ronnie. I got a twofold question. On the Passover, as far as uh, I know, they still observe it. The Jews to this day, they still observe it. And what, how does that affect us as Christians? Or well, I know we don't seem to do anything, or do we? Yeah, every time we partake of communion, it's remembering the Passover lamb, Jesus. Uh, do this in remembrance of me, the body broken, the blood the wine or the cup shed. And so our Passover is Jesus. He's the ultimate Passover. So they don't do it today because they don't have a temple to sacrifice their lambs. And so by faith, they're hoping that God is covering their sins and unfortunately, they're lost. And symbolically, I mean, and Jesus became that Passover lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the fulfillment of every feast, of every law, of every 
thing in the Bible, every type in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And so for us as the Christian, whether it's the Sabbath, Jesus is our rest, or the Passover lamb, Jesus is our Passover lamb, um, all of these things, it all points to the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So we have everything in Christ.